My name is Ian Urbina. I've reported on some pretty mind-blowing stories, but nothing like what happens at sea. If they got within 800 metres, that is when we would fire warning shots. Murder, slavery, human trafficking, and staggering environmental crimes. Men have told me that they've been beaten with stingray tails, with chains. If you really want to understand crime, start where the law of the land ends. The Outlaw Ocean. Available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hey, I'm Tamara Kandacker. Over the last couple of years, like a lot of you, I'm sure, I've been working remotely. And I've thought so many times how nice and easy it would be to just sublet my apartment and work remotely from somewhere else for a while. And the one place I've always wanted to spend more time in is Mexico City. It's one of my favorite cities on earth. It has world-class dining. It's rich with history and culture, and the weather is amazing. Apparently, and it's no wonder, a lot of people had the same thought and actually did make the move. Over the course of the pandemic, Mexico City became one of the top destinations for digital nomads. I'm currently living and working from Mexico City. If you're a remote worker and you're curious about the digital nomad lifestyle here, then this video will help you decide if Mexico City is your next remote work destination. Let's get into it. But now there are so many remote workers in Mexico City that local residents say it's getting kind of hard not to feel their presence. My name is Octavio Mandujano. I'm a political scientist and urban planner. I was born in Mexico City 32 years ago. I think the main problem with digital nomads who come to Mexico City to work for a very certain period of time is that they are all generally grouped into two or three neighborhoods of the city, which causes the cost of living in these places to go up. All services, all goods increase in price. Rents become unpayable. I'm Alonso Alvarez. I do software testing. So for us, since we're earning pesos, things are costing more, and it's becoming more expensive or more complicated to be able to pay for things. Earlier this year, an American woman tweeted, quote, do yourself a favor and remote work in Mexico City. It is truly magical. And it was not received well. The tweet went viral, locals started weighing in, and it sparked a heated conversation about gentrification and class divisions. The woman quickly deleted the tweet, but the tensions that were revealed by the responses to it are still very much alive. When they go to other areas where rich people don't live, where people are living a different kind of reality, and the magic ends, green areas are transformed into other types of areas filled with cement, with street without trees. And so in those places, the magic isn't magic anymore. Mexico City's been seeing a lot of gentrification over the last 20 years. But what's happening now is different. The divisions that are popping up are along cultural and national lines in a way that's been supercharged by the rise of remote work. Aldo Saldana's family's been in Mexico City for generations, and he's been watching this play out. 
Y el problema no es que vengan. The problem is not that they come. That, in fact, has a positive impact here because of the money they spend. But the point here is that we suddenly have begun to normalize that there are spaces where only English or other languages are spoken. Los he escuchado también que traen actitudes I've also heard them bring racist attitudes and comments that range from microaggressions to abuse. The first time I heard someone refer to us as browns in a restaurant, I couldn't get over my shock. He thought no one understood him. This phenomenon isn't unique to Mexico City. We're seeing remote workers flocking to a lot of other places too, like Indonesia, Thailand, and Portugal. Tourist-friendly, more affordable, with warm weather. But the backlash we're seeing in Mexico City makes it a great case study and how these remote workers can alter the economy of a place and make life harder for locals. You're listening to Nothing is Foreign. Mexico City had already been an emerging tourist destination. Zachary Berkman is originally from New Jersey. So when all other choices had been removed and people were itching to go on vacation, get a change of pace after quarantining, many, many of them came here. He moved to Mexico City four years ago, so before the pandemic hit. He works as an English teacher and he has a pretty big following on TikTok. He makes content about traveling and living in Mexico City. Mexico City gay cooking. Today we're seasoning a new morcajete and making some salsa. First, wash it well to remove the dirt, like you should be removing your ex from your life. Flush all that toxicity down the drain. Bye. All that would be going into our food. When I talked to Zach, I started by asking him why he loves living in Mexico City. Uh, so many reasons. <laughs> okay. First and foremost, to live in a place where there are 700 plus years of history, where the influence of the Mexica or Aztec Empire is still present in the food, the language, the customs. And at the same time, it's um, a cosmopolitan, modern city with a vibrant LGBTQ community, something that's important to me, great public transport, Arguably the best cuisine in the world. I may start some fights there, but I stand by it. <laughs> um, warm, friendly people, amazing weather. I could go on and on. Just so many things. After the magical place to live tweet blew up, he felt like he had to use his platform to give remote workers some advice. Many Americans are working remotely from Mexico City nowadays. Most Mexicans welcome you, but your visit and your dollars may have some unintended consequences. I've talked to a Mexican urban planner who happens to be my boyfriend for these tips to help you have a responsible visit. Number one, don't be a language Karen. Many tourists don't speak any Spanish, expect everyone to speak English, and even get mad when people don't speak their language. If this is going to be you, don't even bother coming here. Duolingo is free. Number two. Zach's partner is Octavio, the political scientist and urban planner you heard from earlier, and he was born and raised in Mexico City. The two of them have talked a lot about gentrification, what it means to be a foreign remote worker, and what can be done to ease the conflict. When that tweet went viral, what did you and your friends think? Oh boy. <laughs> so this tweet, um, I think it wasn't so much the tweet itself that was the problem. It just became a lightning rod that attracted all the opinions that had been simmering as a result of this influx of digital nomads and pandemic tourists. 
And among me and my friends and what I've heard, the vast majority of、uh, people's opinions were exasperated and negative. You know, that these foreign visitors saw Mexico City or really just a handful of neighborhoods of Mexico City as this Instagrammable paradise. And they were just totally oblivious to the fact that, one, this was a very narrow, sheltered experience of the city. And two, that them coming here to have that experience was having effects that they weren't conscious of. I mean, some Mexicans did defend the woman, saying that. Tourist money is important, and that this phenomenon was helping many businesses, but it tended to be a limited number of businesses in a limited area, whereas the effects are being felt throughout the entire city. Yeah, and that sentiment among you and your group of friends, I think I've seen it reflected in the online responses to that tweet as well. Like, I saw people making fun of the tweet and pairing it with pictures of like this crazy packed subway stop or like a homeless encampment in front of a Zara store. Essentially, it kind of exposed that person being a bit out of touch and illustrated this gulf between foreigners and how locals live, right? Yeah, I think it was just funny how unrealistic the idea that、um, this woman had of the city was, that it had nothing to do with the reality that millions of Chilangos, people from Mexico City, live every day. So, yeah, it was all anyone could talk about for a couple of weeks. I also remember seeing these signs that were posted around Mexico City that said, New to the city, working remotely, you're an effing plague and locals effing hate you, and then leave in all caps. I wonder, have you seen these tensions play out in real life? So I haven't seen any, you know, face to face confrontations, but I've heard a lot of my Mexican friends telling me about how this has impacted them. Without necessarily having spoken to the digital nomads. So, for example, I had a friend who tried to make a restaurant reservation and he called, he asked in Spanish and was told, Oh, we don't have any tables, sorry. And then he tried to do an experiment. He had、uh, a friend who spoke English well call and ask the same question and they said, Oh, sure, what time do you want to come in? So, yeah, there's. Definitely a lot of that、um, preferential treatment going on. I think a lot of business owners and also landlords are making it pretty clear that their preference is for these foreigners who have a lot of money rather than Mexicans who've lived there their entire lives. Zach also told me about the more visible ways that the city's been changing. So, there actually has been a recent campaign by the borough government in the area where most of the digital nomads are staying, which is called Alcaldia Cuatemoc. And it's been to replace traditional hand painted signs called rotulos with monochromatic signs with the borough logo on it. So, before you would see a lot of them on food stands, and there are these beautiful hand painted signs advertising, you know, tacos, tortas, things like that. But now, They all look the same. It's all white and gray. And it's being seen as another symptom of losing local culture and identity as part of the process of gentrification. It's basically another example of the red carpet being rolled out for the foreigners at the expense of the Mexicans, even if it isn't something the foreigners actually want. 
So when you're walking around the city, when you're going into coffee shops and maybe you see a remote worker at the bar with their laptop, judging by their accents, can you usually tell where they've come from? Where are these people usually from? So I would say the vast majority of them are Canadians and Americans. There are some Europeans, but the Europeans that are here tend to have been here a little longer. Like in the 2008 financial crisis, a lot of them came over, but not nearly in the amounts that we're seeing or that we have seen in the past two years, I would say. It's so easy. Hi, I'm Salima Shivji, and I'm a reporter here in Mumbai. We're gearing up for the biggest election in history right now, with Prime Minister Narendra Modi looking very likely to win his third term. And whether you love him, hate him, or know nothing about him, there's no denying Modi is one of the most powerful political figures out there right now. Learn why in the newest season of Understood. Modi's India Understood, available now wherever you get your podcasts. For digital nomads from the global north to move to global south cities and establish themselves there with a remote job. But if a person from the global south were to like, engage in digital nomadism in the global north, they'd be treated very differently. This is Tamara Velazquez. She's an urban researcher and PhD student at Rutgers University, and she lives in the U.S., but is originally from Mexico City. There's also a lot of issues at play in terms of affordability that have predated the digital nomad boom. Gentrification in Mexico City started 20 years ago. Tamara's research looks at how gentrification in her hometown compares to that in Brooklyn. And to get an idea of the scale of the problem, I wanted to understand how she went about measuring gentrification in the first place. So my methodology focuses not not on looking at gentrification through demographic variables, but rather looking at it through spatial variables, um, namely new construction and Airbnbs. I'm experimenting with using these two variables as a way to measure gentrification by proxy because you can't really measure gentrification directly. And the other thing I measured was gentrifiability or gentrification risk, like what makes an area more desirable to gentrifiers. And the way I measured that was the distance to a metro station, the distance to a bike share, etc. On the map, you can see that the areas that are most brightly colored are the areas that are at most high risk based on transit access, based on bike share access, based on bike lane access, amenities, etc. Right. And so based on your research, which areas of the city are most at risk of gentrification? So I think the two areas that are most at risk right now are Colonia Juarez and Cuauhtémoc, which are two fairly centrally located neighborhoods, historically very middle class, very lower middle class. Juarez in particular was one of the few neighborhoods that offered centrally located, fairly affordable rents for working class people who worked in the city center. Also, other central areas like San Rafael, um, the Centro Histórico, they, they are very much at risk and very much undergoing gentrification and, and displacement at these particular moments. 
There are a number of different forces that were already coming together and driving gentrification in Mexico City even before the influx of remote workers. So I would say there's definitely been a building boom. Over the past 20 years, there's been a strategy of vertical development undergone by the city government where they've encouraged real estate developers and other private sector actors to develop in the city in the city center as a way to limit sprawl and to quote unquote revitalize the city center after it was very heavily emptied out during the 1985 earthquake that's definitely been one factor luxury construction is all over the place and Airbnb has exploded in the last few years and that's kind of come as parallel to a branding strategy that has encouraged people to move to the city as digital nomads that has encouraged a lot of artists from the global north to sort of relocate to Mexico City to travel to Mexico City there was a lot of very fluffy PR type pieces showing up in, in the New York Times and Vice in other media outlets creating this narrative of why you must move to Mexico City, why Mexico City is this emerging hub. The city has been rebranded as this kind of hip, artsy, trendy destination, as this new Berlin, if you will. And it's worked. A lot of digital nomads, a lot of short-term renters from the global north have been moving to the city and they've very heavily relied on Airbnb. And they've been settling in some of the most, as Tamara puts it, at-risk areas of Mexico City. So they mostly live in the most gentrified neighborhoods of the city or neighborhoods that are undergoing rapid gentrification. Colonia Juarez, which I mentioned earlier, is a big digital nomad spot. There's coffee shops in there where, like, if you go, literally the only language you hear is English. So there's a bunch of things going on. It sounds like a construction boom, the rise of Airbnb, the city becoming known as this trendy tourist destination. How did the pandemic play into all of this? A lot of people, particularly from the U.S. and Europe, started moving to Mexico City because um, Mexico had more lax pandemic restrictions, like Mexico City never had a lockdown per se. But that's been sort of a rude awakening in a sense, because even though there's, there is no lockdown or was no lockdown, locals have been very stringent about following social distancing, masking, whereas the digital nomads have not. And that has led to tensions. Do we have any data on the scale of what happened? Like how many remote workers have planted themselves in Mexico City over the last couple of years? It's difficult to find data precisely because a lot of Mexico doesn't have a kind of a digital nomad visa scheme or anything like that. A lot of these people just kind of move there and work there and there's no real official registry of them. Like a lot of them are probably not even included in the the foreign born section of the census. So we don't really know how many people there are who are doing this. There's just a big community of demographics that I didn't see here before. Like, you know, it, it feels very bro-y, if that is a kind word to say. 
Kara Araneta works as a creative consultant for the hospitality industry. She also founded and runs a women's club called Las Brujas. And everywhere with my friends and my local community, I feel like I'm stepping into places and people are like, oh, there's so many gringos here. And I just have to be like, I'm sorry. Lo siento. Lo siento. (laughs) Kara moved to Mexico City more than three years ago. In her previous life, she worked in Silicon Valley. But she sees herself as a bit distinct from this wave of digital nomads who've recently arrived in Mexico City. You know, what digital nomad is now in comparison to before where, you know, like for me, I created a business around consulting and traveling and working with hotels, whereas a lot of corporate companies have gone remote. And so it's this new face of corporate systems. Digital nomads previously was like, I'm exploring outside of the system. I want to live free. Whereas now it's people that were in the system that suddenly can live free. You know, Silicon Valley and San Francisco, the Bay Area was really exclusive with their talent and they had to be there. And now as, you know, Meta went full remote and Google being super flexible. So it's two different mindsets. So why did you choose Mexico City as your home for the past three years? To be honest with you, Mexico City was the first place that felt like home. And I've lived in so many different countries. I'm originally from the United States. And as a woman of color, as first generation, it never felt like home. I didn't feel connected there, the culture. Whereas coming to Mexico, it's so rich and vibrant. And it's not this capitalistic culture. It's more people focused. And based on your observations, is this new crop of residents who came during the pandemic, is it different from the kind of person that you'd seen moving to Mexico City pre-pandemic? 100%. It feels very like pedestrian travelers. I say it with love, but there is a definite difference between the travelers that are previous to pandemic versus now. It felt like more coastal elites before and like more Europeans, whereas now it's like, Um, a lot of North Americans that are kind of creating this environment similar to like Cancun, like I'm coming for cheap tacos and like, you know, it, it feels like that kind of element versus more of the cultural curiosity people that were like kind of bold. And I don't know what's happening in Mexico City, but I'm gonna go explore. Like the others, Kara's also noticed that these new visitors congregate in a select few neighborhoods. It's getting almost like a joke where they say in this bubble, which is like Condesa, Roma, Juarez, they're like, oh, there's a small community of Mexicans that live in this bubble. (laughs) It is really sad. It's like witnessing colonization. If you talk to people in Mexico City about remote workers, you actually hear the words colonization and neocolonization come up again and again. For Kara, there was one conversation in particular that crystallizes for her. I was having a coffee and this gentleman next to me was a white man, identified as a white man. And I said, oh, why did you move to Mexico? And he basically said that he was tired of being white in America. And I was very surprised by this comment because basically to me, I realized that he didn't understand his privilege and that when he comes here, The Mexican culture, obviously, there's colorism. So people kind of feel like they're on a pedestal in many ways. 
so it sounds like he's one of those people who feels like white men are being discriminated against in the U.S. And so he's come to Mexico City because he knows that he's going to be put on a pedestal there. I think there's a sense of power struggle and shifts in U.S. And like his on the surface level story was, I don't feel safe anymore in the U.S. because there's this angst towards me. However, underneath it all, which I had to kind of be very clear, you're just not feeling this pedestal that you once lived on, which was actually systematic and unhealthy and toxic. But um, yeah, I see it. But I also see in the black community, I have friends who are here that said the same exact thing. They said I was tired of being black in America. And so I think there is an escapism to Mexico because it is kind of neutral in comparison to a lot of other Latin countries. They are comfortable with North Americans. A lot of people here speak English and they're more accepting of North Americans versus Brazil, for example. Totally different language, don't even care about you. Almost harder for you to be there. The Mexican government hasn't really done anything to address the concerns of local residents when it comes to the impact of remote workers. In fact, because Mexico is so reliant on tourism for its economy, they didn't introduce very many travel restrictions during the pandemic. And Americans are allowed to stay in the country for up to six months. So I asked Zach and Tamara if locals had seen any benefits from remote workers settling in the city. So I think... Some of the things that have changed for the better is the government has realized that, you know, when neighborhoods look nice, not so much in the way of removing the local culture, but, you know, picking up trash, planting gardens, um, improving the public transport, things like that. They may have done it with an eye on attracting more tourists, but there are also things that improve the daily lives of the people who live here full time. Maybe some local businesses are thriving, but in general, like a lot of local businesses have been forced to close and have been replaced with businesses that are more favorable to the digital nomad culture, like the Cafe Trevi in the city center, this old diner that had been there for many years. Um, it was demolished um, to much outcry a couple years ago and, and is now being replaced by a co-working space that caters specifically to digital nomads. So I would say that unfortunately right now the bad outweighs the good given the power imbalances, given the currency imbalances. Of all the inequalities brought to light by the explosion of remote workers in Mexico City, the most obvious one is housing. A couple of years ago, we were looking at rents that were in the couple hundred dollars. Now, I would say they are around U.S. market price, like a thousand, two thousand dollars. Maybe slightly cheaper, but still unaffordable to most Mexicans. The average salary for a college grad is still below $1,000 a month in Mexico. So anything that's market price in the U.S. would be completely unaffordable, even for a middle class, upper middle class Mexican. There are some provisions like rent control, but the problem is there's also a lot of corruption and permissiveness around real estate that ends up letting landlords get away with a lot. Yeah, I've heard about landlords using pretty aggressive tactics to push tenants out of their homes. 
So there's been a lot of tenant intimidation, a lot of violence used against tenants, but it's not just tenants, it's also homeowners. Developers have started using armed groups to try to intimidate people in in areas like Colonia Juarez to sell the apartments that they bought 40, 50 years ago so that they can tear down the building and and redevelop it. There's been a lot of stories like this in, in the local news. Judith Resendez has lived here since she was a child. Four years ago, the owner of her building sold it to a Mexican bank, ignoring the tenant's right of first refusal. The new owner hired armed security, installed surveillance cameras, and sent in thugs to intimidate them. But 12 of the tenants stayed. They barricaded themselves on the roof to escape the constant harassment. From what I've seen, they usually show up to people's houses, they threaten them, they tell them that they'll do something to them if they won't move. It's a pretty bad situation. Like, you really see this collusion between real estate and organized crime. The thing is, a lot of these are long-standing issues that foreigners may be totally oblivious to when they decide to move to Mexico City. And it's pretty easy to understand why locals are frustrated with remote workers who aren't aware of the effect of their presence, but it's hard to blame them for falling in love with Mexico City and wanting to live there. So I asked Tamara if foreign workers are entirely to blame for what's going on, or if there are some bigger systemic issues at play. Yeah, it's absolutely a systemic problem. Like, what we're seeing now is merely a symptom. Really, the problem is financialization as a result of permissiveness around real estate, mass real estate speculation. And it's a process that's not just happening in Mexico City. It's happening in many cities around the world, New York, London, Amsterdam. They're all sort of facing this housing crisis right now. Like you said, gentrification is an issue that crops up in any kind of major cosmopolitan city. I mean, even in Toronto, where I am, But I feel like what makes this different is that in the last couple of years, the haves in Mexico City are not locals. They're often these white, high foreign currency earning expat workers. And the have-nots are longtime local residents earning pesos. So how much is this inequality being talked about among lawmakers, people in charge of setting the rules? I think it's a conversation that's beginning to start, but it hasn't been explored in much depth by lawmakers, but certainly by the public and and the local media. It's something that's increasingly generating outrage. Right now, there's a lot of permissiveness when it comes to um, digital nomads in Mexico City, which actually doesn't apply to all immigration in general. Immigrants and refugees from places like Haiti or Central America are treated very poorly in Mexico and face constant crackdowns by immigration authorities in a way that digital nomads never do. And it's much more difficult for somebody from the global south to do digital nomadism in the States, primarily because I think anybody who might even attempt it, would get deported once it's found out. Like, the U.S. is very stringent when it comes to immigration policies and requires even tourists to have visas, for instance. Most people from the global north do not need a tourist visa to go to Mexico. But Tamara says there are policy decisions that could be made right now to ease the tensions and even out the playing field for everyone who calls Mexico City home. 
firstly, the government needs to build more affordable housing programs that are actually centrally located. A lot of the affordable housing through the Infonavit program tends to be on the peripheries of the city in areas that don't have any amenities, any supermarkets, anything other than just blocks and blocks of affordable housing. Most of these peripheries are transit deserts. The metro doesn't go that far. So people will start facing like two, three hour commutes, whereas they would have a 15 to 20 minute commute before. But also there needs to be more of a a crackdown on Airbnb and short-term rentals because that's really creating a lot of distortions in the housing market. We asked Airbnb in Mexico to respond to the criticisms we've heard and to the call for government intervention to increase regulation of Airbnb rentals in Mexico City. We also asked Airbnb if they have a broader policy around balancing the explosive demand from remote workers for short-term rentals in countries like Mexico against the concerns from many local residents that the company is distorting domestic housing markets and changing the character of neighborhoods. We haven't heard back. It's going to take time for any new laws or regulations around immigration or housing to take effect. These are, of course, big structural changes that would take a while to implement if the government decided to introduce them. In the meantime, Kara and Zach say there are ways remote workers can be more conscientious and not make these issues in Mexico City even worse. I think a lot of conversations around connecting marginalized communities and their volunteer programs is really important so that we are, as expats, beyond just spending money here, we're also getting involved and being more aware, like, news, what's happening? What can we do to participate? There's no water here. The corruption with government, like, all those kinds of things to be aware of. It's kind of like a hotel room. You treat your hotel room differently than you treat your home. You know, you leave your towel on the ground, the cleaning service is coming, like whatever. But I think really this conversation is around how can, for however long we're here, being conscious of the impact we create in the economy, in the community here, and also what can we give back? Oh, also, I I do want to say there's like so many things about good behavior, like coming to Mexico and saying how cheap it is, is really insulting to locals. I mean, I think the most important thing that digital nomads and foreign workers can do is come here with an interest in how Mexicans live their lives and not to just check things off their travel list and enjoy the the favorable exchange rate. You know, I get that it can be intimidating if you don't speak much Spanish or unsure about the local customs. No matter where you go, the so-called expat community um, is always a bit insular. But by breaking out of that bubble... You could take a Spanish class before you come here, spend your tourist dollars in less touristy but equally fascinating areas instead of the same five restaurants you saw at Instagram. And above all, not expecting all Mexicans to be English-speaking tour guides who will agree when you say that Mexico is so cheap. By doing these things, you can enjoy your stay and limit the negative impact on the city and its inhabitants. All right, that's all for this week. You've been listening to Nothing is Foreign. 
Our producer is Ashley Mack. Our sound designer is Yvette Sin. And our showrunner is Joyta Shangupta. For this episode, special thanks to Ali James. Nothing is Foreign is a co-production of CBC News and CBC Podcasts. Willow Smith is our senior producer and Nick McCabe-Locos is our executive producer. Our theme music is by Joseph Shabison. If you like this episode and you want to help new listeners find the show, take a second to rate and review us wherever you're listening. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at CBC Podcasts. I'm Tamara Kandacker. Thank you so much for listening, and I will talk to you back here next week. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.